section one of Out of the Iron Womb. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. Out of the Iron Womb by Paul Anderson. Section one. Behind a pale Venusian mask lay hidden the arch-humanist, the anti-tech killer, one of those who needlessly had strewn Malone blood across the heavens from Saturn to the sun. Now, on distant Trojan asteroids, the rendezvous for death was plainly marked. The most dangerous is not the outlawed murderer, who only slays men, but the rebellious philosopher, for he destroys worlds. Darkness and the chill glitter of stars, Bo Johnson crouched on a whirling speck of stone and waited for the man who was coming to kill him. There was no horizon. The flying mountain on which he stood was too small. At his back rose a cliff of jagged rock, losing its own blackness in the loom of shadows. Its teeth ate raggedly across the Milky Way. Before him, a tumbled, igneous wilderness slanted crazily off, with one long, thin crag sticking into the sky like a grotesque bowsprit. There was no sound except the thudding of his own heart, the harsh rasp of his own breath, locked inside the stinking metal skin of his suit. Otherwise, no air, no heat, no water or life or work of man, only a granite nakedness spinning through space out beyond Mars. Stooping, awkward in the clumsy armor, he put the transparent plastic of his helmet to the ground. Its cold bitted him, even through the insulating material. He might be able to hear the footsteps of his murderer conducted through the ground. Stillness answered him. He gulped a heavy lungful of tainted air and rose. The other might be miles away yet, or perhaps very close, cat-footing too softly to set up vibrations. A man could do that when gravity was feeble enough. The stars blazed with a cruel wintry brilliance. Over him, around him, light years to fall through emptiness before he reached one. He had been alone among them before. He had almost thought them friends, sometimes on a long watch. A man found himself talking to Vega, or Spica, or dear old Beetlejuice, murmuring what was in him as if the remote sun could understand. But they didn't care. He saw that now. To them, he did not exist, and they would shine carelessly long after he was gone into night. He had never felt so alone as now, when another man was on the asteroid with him, hunting him down. Bo Johnson looked at the wrench in his hand. It was long and massive. It would have been heavy on Earth, but it was hardly enough to unscrew the stars and reset the machinery of a universe gone awry. He smiled stiffly at the thought. He wanted to laugh, too, but checked himself for fear he wouldn't be able to stop. Let's face it, he told himself. You're scared. You're scared sweatless. He wondered if he had spoken it aloud. There was plenty of room on the asteroid, at least 200 square miles, probably more if you allowed for the rough surface. He could skulk around, hide, and suffocate when his tank air gave out. 
He had to be a hunter, too, and track down the other man before he died. And if he found his enemy, he would probably die anyway. He looked about him. Nothing. No sound. No movement. Nothing but the streaming of the constellations as the asteroid spun. Nothing had ever moved here since the beginning of time when moltenness congealed into death, not till men came and hunted each other. Slowly, he forced himself to move. The thrust of his foot sent him up, looping over the cliff to drift down like a dead leaf in Earth's October. Suit, equipment, and his own body all together weighed only a couple of pounds here. It was ghostly, this soundless progress over fields which had never known life. It was like being dead already. Bo Johnson's tongue was dry and thick in his mouth. He wanted to find his enemy and give up, buy existence at whatever price it would command. But he couldn't do that. Even if the other man let him do it, which was doubtful, he couldn't. Johnny Malone was dead. Maybe that was what had started it all, the death of Johnny Malone. There are numerous reasons for basing on the Trojan asteroids, but the main one could be given in a single word, stability. They stay put in Jupiter's orbit about 60 degrees ahead and behind with only minor oscillations. Spaceships need not waste fuel coming up to a body which has been perturbed a goodly distance from where it was supposed to be. The trailing group is the jumping off place for transjovian planets, the leading group for the inner worlds. That way their own revolution about the sun gives the departing ship a welcome boost while minimizing the effects of Jupiter's drag. Moreover, being dense clusters, they have attracted swarms of miners, so that Achilles among the leaders and Patroclus and the trailers have a permanent boomtown atmosphere. Even though spaceship and equipment represent a large investment, this is one of the last strongholds of genuinely private enterprise. The prospector, the mine owner, the rockhound dreaming of the day when his stake is big enough for him to start out on his own. A race of individualists, rough and noisy and jealous, but living under iron rules of hospitality and rescue. The last chance on Achilles has another name, which simply sticks an R in the official one, even for that planetoid. It is a rowdy bar where guardsmen come in trios. But Johnny Malone liked it and talked Bo Johnson into going there for a final spree before checkoff and departure. Nothing to compare, he insisted. Every place else is getting too fantangling civilized except Venus, and I don't enjoy Venus. Johnny was from Luna City himself, a small, dark man with the quick, nervous movements and dipped accent of that roaring commercial metropolis. He affected the latest styles, brilliant colors in a flowing tunic and slacks, a beret cocked on his sleek head. But somehow he didn't grate on Bo. They had been partners for several years now. They pushed through a milling crowd at the bar, rockhounds who watched one of Achilles' three live ecdesiasts with hungry eyes, and by some miracle found an empty booth. 
Bow squeezed his bulk into one side of the cubicle, while Johnny, squinting through a reeking smoke haze, dialed drinks. Bow was larger and heavier than most spacemen. He'd never have gotten his certificate before the ion drive came in, and was usually content to let others talk while he listened. A placid, blond giant with amiable blue eyes and a battered brown face. He did not consider himself bright and always wanted to learn. Johnny gulped his drink and winced. Whiskey, they call it yet. <laughs> Water, synthetic alcohol, and a dash of caramel. They have the gall to label whiskey and charge for? Everything's expensive here, said Bo mildly. That's why so few rock hounds get rich. They make a lot of money, but they have to spend it just as fast to stay alive. Yeah, yeah, I wish they'd spend some of it on us. Johnny grinned and fed the dispenser another coin. It muttered to itself and slid forth a tray with a glass. Come on, drink up, man. It's a long way home, and we've got to fortify ourselves for the trip. A bottle, a battle, and a wench is what I need. Most especially the wench, because I don't think the eminent Dr. McKittrick is going to be interested in sociability in its close quarters aboard the dog. Bo kept on sipping slowly. Johnny, he said, raising his voice to cut through the din, you're an educated man. I never could figure out why you want to talk like a jumper. Because I am one at heart. Look, Bo, why don't you get over that inferiority complex of yours? A man can't run a spaceship without knowing more math and physical science than the average professor on Earth. So you had to work your way through the academy and never had a chance to fan yourself with a lily-white hand while somebody tootled Mozart through a horn. So what? Johnny's head darted around bird-like. If we want some women, we'd better make our reservations now. I don't, Johnny, said Bo. I'll just nurse a beer. It wasn't morals so much as fastidiousness. He'd wait till they hit Luna. Suit yourself. If you don't want to uphold the honor of the serious transportation company... Bo chuckled. The company consisted of A, the Sirius, B, her crew, himself and Johnny, C, a warehouse, Berth, and three other part owners back in Luna City. Not exactly a tramp ship, because, because you can't normally stop in the middle of an interplanetary voyage and head for somewhere else, but she went wherever there was cargo or people to be moved. Her margin of profit was not great in spite of the charges, for a space trip is expensive. But in a few more years, they'd be able to buy another ship or two. And eventually, Fireball and Triplanetary would be getting some competition. Even the public lines might have to worry a little. Johnny put away another couple of shots and rose. Alcohol cost plenty, but it was also more effective in low G. Excuse me, he said. I see a target. Sure you don't want me to ask if she has a friend? Bo shook his head and watched his partner move off, swift in the puny gravity. The last chance didn't centrifuge like some of the Tomaker places downtown. It was hard to push through the crowd without weight to help. But Johnny faded along and edged up to the girl with his highest powered smile. There were several other men standing around her, but Johnny had the touch. 
He'd be bringing her back here in a few minutes. Bo sighed, feeling a bit lonesome. If he wasn't going to make a night of it, there was no point in drinking heavily. He had to make the final inspection of the ship tomorrow and grudge the cost of anti-hangover tablets. Besides, what he was putting back into the business, he was trying to build a private hoard. Someday, he'd retire, get married, and build a house. He already had the site picked out on Cullen, overlooking the sound back on Earth. Man, but it was a long time since he'd been on Earth. A sharp noise slashed through the haze of talk and music. Bo looked up. There was a tall, black-haired man, Venusian, to judge by his kilts, arguing with Johnny. His face was ugly with anger. Johnny made some reply. Bo heaved up his form and strode toward the discussion, casually picking up anyone in the way and setting him aside. Johnny liked to fight, but this Venusian was big. As he neared, he caught words. My girl, damn it. Like hell I am, said the girl. I never saw you before. Run along and play, son, said Johnny. Or do you want me to change that diaper of yours? That was when it happened. Bo saw the little needler spit from the Venusian's fingers. Johnny stood there a moment, looking foolishly at the dart in his stomach. Then his knees buckled, and he fell with a nightmare slowness. The Venusian was already on the move. He sprang straight up, slammed a kick at the wall, and arced out the door into the dome corridor beyond. A spaceman that knows how to handle himself in low G. It was the only clear thought which ran in the sudden storm of Bo's head. The girl screamed. A man cursed and tried to follow the Venusian. He tangled with another. Get out of my way! A roar lifted. Someone slugged. Someone else coolly smashed a bottle against the bar and lifted the jagged edge. There was the noise of a fist meeting flesh. Bo had seen death before. That needle wasn't anesthetic. It was poison. He knelt in the riot with Johnny's body in his arms. End of section one. Recording by Paul Harvey.